The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We're glad to see people willing to come out as we learn how to re-engage, even with uh, COVID still going. And um, many of you probably know, but in case you don't, I've been working through an, an important list set of teachings in early Buddhism called the Paramis. In the later traditions, Buddhist traditions, they're called the Paramitas. But uh, at least mythically, they're thought of as what kind of qualities of the heart does one need to become a Buddha? That's like a way of thinking of it. And the list of ten in early Buddhism, because it's slightly different than the list of seven in the later Buddhist traditions, generosity, moral sensitivity, renunciation, wisdom, energy, which I started talking about, I think, last week. And then it goes, uh, let's see if I have it right, truthfulness, resoluteness, equanimity, loving-kindness, patience. Patience is a little bit earlier in the list. And that rounds out to ten. And as I've been saying all along, you know, because these lists can drive us crazy and we think, oh, you know, I've got to do this, forget it. But uh, like so many things, it's good just to follow where our interests and maybe even our natural talents. And you'll see, like, if you're just naturally a generous person or naturally a patient person, if you really develop that into your own personal superpower, you'll start seeing all the other wholesome qualities right there with that quality that came relatively easily for you. But it is important to go through them to really understand. Because, you know, in a way, wholesomeness, you know, the wholesomeness of the heart, it may be able to be described as these ten facets, but in the end it's just that skillfulness or wholesomeness, that wisdom and compassion. So we're really, we want to think of these more nuanced teachings as that. It's a teaching, it's a teaching tool to help us, I mean, in early Buddhism, this is really the essence of wisdom, knowing the difference between a skillful an unskillful heart, or the, a wholesome and unwholesome heart. And you can, you know, we probably have a sense of how dangerous it is to be living our life not knowing the difference. Where we think, I'm being good, but we're actually leaving a trail of destruction. And, and part of that trail of dis- destruction is the impressions left in our own heart let alone in all of those around us. I mean, if we interviewed the people really making a mess of their lives and their relationships, a lot of those people would say, oh, it's not me. You know, I'm, I'm skillful, I'm wholesome. It's, you know, we point the finger. And remember, just because we're learning the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome, doesn't mean we can stop ourselves from acting out in unwholesome ways. 
But what it means is we've cultivated this inner clarity, honesty, and wisdom, so that when we're unskillful, we know, I'm being unskillful. I'd rather not, but I'm planting seeds for my own suffering and for the suffering of others. And the, and the last thing I'm going to do is compound that unskillfulness by lying to myself or pretending that it's otherwise. Right? It's a real step in the direction, and this is sort of a little different than maybe we might initially think of it, but from the Buddhist point of view, if you're going to be unskillful, it's much better to know that you're unskillful when you're being unskillful than to be oblivious. Because the, that moral sensitivity that is one of the paramis, it tells us, oh, like we're, we feel impacted that what in English we might call our conscience says, oh, oh, is this what you want to set in motion in your heart, in, your, in this world? No. So we have that moral sensitivity that it's like a repulsion, like, oh, I don't want to be the person I am. And that, that yucky feeling is really useful. It's information. <laughs> Honey, this is not the direction I want to go. This is not the person I want to be. And it provides a natural, organic incentive if we didn't have that conscience, that moral sensitivity, we could be a real jerk and there would be no sort of corrective built in to the heart that basically, you know, keeps us from doing that. So one of these uh, qualities is effort. And uh, effort, this is sort of, we don't always think of it this way, but the way the Buddha understood it, it's effort that leads to energy. And there's no awakening, no, because awakening requires that we stop doing what we always do, right? We stop relating in the ways we've always been relating to experience. So that initially takes a lot of energy. And where do we get energy? Well, besides caffeine, <laughs> I'm a bit of a green tea addict. Um, but this was really helpful. I remember when one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, really made this point. Um, back when I was doing a lot more of the longer intensive retreats, that it's effort that energizes the heart. And this is something you can check out, like when you're feeling dead to the world, if you go do something, if you make yourself do something, you feel energized. If we sit and complain, waiting for it to change, we tend to get more lethargic, heavy. We could just see how that is. And and a place to check this out actually is in your sitting practice because it, it's quite natural at times for there to arise a lot of sleepiness, heaviness of the mind, constriction, that sort of dull, those dull states that are not uncommon in meditation. And then you can just experiment, okay, 
I'm going to make the mind work, but I'm going to ask it to do stuff that's in the service of the meditation, right? So not just plan this, figure out that, but like, okay, so what would be in the service of the meditation? We'll all ask the mind to notice more refined details of the present moment. And if you want to add maybe more work for the mind, say, and I want you to mentally name what you're noticing. That's a lot of work for the mind to name. Oh, frustration feels like this. Judging feels like this. Breathing in, breathing in, coolness of the air coming in. I mean, there's no limit to how much... You know, we think, oh, I'm aware of the present moment, but there's so many facets of the present moment to notice. And then to actually, I'm not, you don't have to do this, it's just what you can do. Like if you're really sleepy, you might just see, well, can I see more details, more refined details of the in-breath coming in? So maybe you're feeling it at the nostrils, or maybe you just feel it more generally in your chest and abdomen, that expansion and contraction. And when we're not dull, we might just have a general sense that breathing in is happening. But when the mind is dull, we might ask the mind to make the effort to really notice every nuance of that expansion, the lifting of the abdominal wall, the spreading of the rib cage, the inner sense of pressure as the breath comes in, and then the sinking, collapsing with the exhalation. And you might find the mind brightening, that there's just more energy because of making effort. And you know, when you read, the, some of you know, the Buddha by birth was part of the warrior caste. It wasn't quite, the caste system wasn't quite as developed back 2,500 years ago as it is in more recent centuries. But you know, there was this sort of Still, the, the warrior caste sort of into heroic efforts. And so you get some of this when you read the suttas, the discourses. The Buddha was into making effort, but always the real uh, importance was about the wise effort. And, you know, probably some of you have been practicing for a while, but even when you just begin, one of the things we learn about more than anything is how we can under-effort and over-effort. I mean, how many people in the beginning years of meditation, you know, depending on your sort of temperament or personality, you just kind of, oh, I know, I can do this. And it's just like, I'm just going to apply my mind. Tell me what the meditation object is. I bring my attention there. And it's kind of this muscular, like, don't tell me, I'm telling you what to do. You know, and as if the mind can be trained, like a dog or something like that. Well, we won't win, right? Because the, the effort is off from the beginning. It's really based on misunderstanding what the mind is. That it's something that can be dominated and controlled. I mean, it, it sort of can just enough to delude us to go that way. And then what we tend to do, you know, I'm talking about it more in the extreme, 
we tend then to swing the other way where we want to give up because we feel betrayed. We made that sort of heroic, noble, muscular effort to dominate. And we do this with our partners and we do this with so many different aspects of our life, dieting or changing our diet or starting an exercise regimen or cleaning the house or you know, any number of things that we, we kind of rally this heroic effort in and I'm going to do it. How many books did you write that way, Greta? <laughs> well, you just kind of make yourself do it. I'm, I'm doing it. No, you can't go to bed. Not until this chapter is finished or whatever. And, and we kind of get away with it for a while. But it really eats our heart out. And then we're, we, we, we're left feeling somewhat betrayed. Like we don't trust efforting. But it wasn't that the effort was uh, not a skillful thing. It was the whole wisdom part. You know, like how the mind conceived, how to apply the mind, how to lean in, how to participate, how to show up. It's sort of like that, you know, funny thing. If, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if all we have in terms of how we show up is either we dominate, we control, we master, we get on top of it, or we don't. And so then, with betrayal, we tend to fall back into some version of helplessness. It isn't worth it, it's too much, I can't dominate it, I can't control it, I can't do it, it's too hard, it's too much. How can I just get by? You know, and then this, we see this a lot in life where, and we kind of know it when we're even a little reflective I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm just like getting through the week in order to get through the month, in order to get through the decade, in order to get to the end of my life. You know? I'm just trying to get by. Don't bother me. I'm just trying to get by. And to like, you know, we don't really have, when we're in this more helpless, like initiating something, it almost feels insulting to come to a place and say, hey, did you know there's a path of awakening where you can be free from suffering? It sounds like like a bunch of hooey, you know, because we've been so betrayed in all the little and big ways we've tried to apply our will, our willfulness to bend life in the direction we want it to go. I want this person to love me in the way I want to be loved. I want to win the lottery. <laughs> I want that cabin on the South Shore of Lake Superior. You know, I don't want to eat sugar, or whatever it might be. So this wise effort, it really, it's, it has to be born out of wisdom. And there's this particular teaching in early Buddhism that's used quite a bit called the Five Faculties. And I like to think of it as the engine of awakening. And you can think of it as a linear way, faith, energy, mindfulness, 
concentration, wisdom. But it's really, uh, as an engine, it's really working together. And if you're going to start anywhere, you'd start with wisdom, seeing something we haven't seen, understanding, like what is wisdom I mentioned earlier, knowing the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome. What ways of being and relating are in the direction of release, and what ways of being and relating that are in the direction of contraction? I mean, just to be simplistic about it. And whenever we have a little learning, a little bit more clarity, well then we have confidence is born out of seeing clearly. Oh, I know what to do with this human life. Because I've discerned somewhat the difference between, I know a little about the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome. So, I have some confidence, I can apply myself, wise effort. And the wise effort is always, this is the learning of this particular engine that we call the Buddhist teachings. The thing that really, the medicine, the intervention that really changes things is to realize, is the realization and then the application of our mind in that direction. That stable, present moment awareness changes everything. It's hard to believe, so we have to check it out. Because, first of all, you won't have the stamina to actually cultivate this lifestyle of, of mindfulness without your own direct experience. And the faith, the confidence that comes out of that, that it really changes everything. And you know, the, the Buddha was often characterized as a kind of doctor who diagnoses our main problem, which is suffering. And suffering is caused by ignorance. So the problem isn't with the world as much as we want to, you know, it seems like it is, <laughs> the ignorance out there. The problem is that this heart and mind is misperceiving, misunderstanding. So then it starts to make sense that the corrective, the intervention, is going to be to develop the heart. So that it can be stable and clear and see things as they are. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't kind of ring our bells when we hear that. And this is, a, this is important to acknowledge, like, because you might be feeling this too, like, Oh, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to make all this effort to be more mindful, to stabilize present moment awareness. And all I'm going to end up with is a t-shirt that says, I'm mindful. I'm more mindful than I used to be. All I got was this t-shirt. I'm more mindful than I used to be. You know, so I'm just more aware of how much suffering there is. I'm more aware of how tight my body is. I'm more aware of how much I don't want my life to be the way that it is. And I don't want the world to be the way that it is. What good is that? And it really matters how, you know, like in terms of effort, what we pay attention, how we pay attention, what we pay attention to. Because it's like we need to keep in mind compelling evidence that comes directly in our practice. 
like we're sitting, like I was tonight, maybe you were, right? We're sitting, we're doing our best to be relaxed and upright in the sense of being interested and interested in what? In the way it is. Not trying to get to a nice experience, but to understand it's like this now. And to sustain that. That's the key. A lot of people give up on the practice. They don't really think that present moment awareness, the stability of present moment awareness, the continuity is transforming, but they haven't actually checked it out. And this is, you know, this first effort to recognize, to make the effort to recognize, oh, this is being known. Now, there are many ways to talk about it, but however we talk about what it is to be present, to be mindful, the key is it's like a, not like, it is an insight, meaning in a moment of being aware of the present moment, of being mindful of the present moment, that, I don't know if I'd say mystical, but that's a new experience for most people. Because mostly, in any given moment, the mind is identified with its own projection, the meaning that my mind is constructing or projecting about who I am or what's happening or what this is. But remember, a moment of mindful awareness, this is being known, and please just Play with it right with your experience right now. This is being known. There may be thoughts, probably are thoughts and concepts and the content of that thought, the meaning that the thought or those thoughts project. But all of that can be known in the present moment. We don't have to be spellbound by anything, by pain, by pleasure, by thought, by ideas, mental images, all of whatever might show up in any moment can simply be recognized as something being known. Something being the experience that's here or not is being known. So don't worry, this is like a lot of people think, well, I think what Mark is talking about is not having any thoughts there. So I'm more in the immediacy. But that can be sort of its own wrong turn where we're all about, the practice becomes all about repressing thought. Which, of course, involves a lot of thought. I need to be repressing thought. That's a thought. That's a thought. It's more simple than that. And then once we know how to make the effort, you see, the effort is mostly about wise effort. The wise part is more than the sort of muscular, like, I could just do this. It doesn't really require blunt force, mindfulness. It requires a lot of experimentation, a lot of misses. Oh no, this can't be it. This can't be it. What is that? to be aware of the present moment. This is being known. You know, we get clues from our teachers and from the Buddha 
about what it is to be present. And it isn't until we know what it is to be present and then know how to make the effort to sustain that. It's like uh, keeping the present moment in mind. And Thich Nhat Hanh has this great line, which is so, for me, compelling. The only real an uh, enemy is forgetfulness. I don't know if people know Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, quite old now, back in Vietnam after having been living in the West for so long since the... He came to the Paris Peace Talks way back in the late 60s. He was a peace activist, a monk, but a peace activist in Vietnam. And nobody liked them, the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese or the South Vietnamese or the United States. So when he left, nobody would let him back in. And it was a great boon for us in the West because he taught for decades. It's like 90 books too, he's written a lot of books. But anyway, the only enemy, this is just such a great summation of the path. There's only one enemy, forgetting. And what are we forgetting? This is being known. And how to sustain that. Like this is, for us, especially in early Buddhism, this is our devotional object. This is what we care about. Connecting and sustaining with the present moment. But it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that without at least giving the mind an object. Oh, he means being with the breath. You know, the breath could be a technique, but it's the present moment. And recognizing it, it's really understanding what the present moment is. It's an experience being known. The experience that's being known doesn't really matter if it's feeling the breath coming in, or hearing a sound, or some disturbing thought, or some anxious emotion. But it's that recognition, it's always something being known. Something being known, something being known. And it's like a universal solvent that dissolves wrong understanding, superficial understanding, self-centered, understanding, it undermines ignorance. Ignorance of any kind cannot be sustained when the mind is present and sustains that present moment awareness. Wisdom grows. And that can be directly observed, and that's why the Buddha says, check it out, Ehipasiko, it's one of those lines that's repeated a lot through all the discourses that were recorded come check it out. You will find out for yourself how transforming it is. But it's like one of those things that we don't know, we don't have our own experience until we have our own experience. So we have to check it out before really knowing what it is that we're checking out. It doesn't matter how nimble or skillful I am at talking about it, or the Buddha is it, it's, that won't do it. We have to experiment until we get some confidence about what it means to be present with any experience, and then learn the effort to sustain that. What kind of effort does the mind, the heart, need to make 
to sustain its interest in the present moment, which is just that ongoing recognition this is being known. But you remember, you don't need those words. I need these words to kind of convey this to you. But you don't have to keep repeating to yourself, this is being known, this is being known. And when you do obsessively repeat, this is being then notice that. Oh, obsessively repeating, this is being known, is being known. And then you would be right back on track. Because we do slide into over-efforting and under-efforting all the time. There's a story about Sona, this uh, monk at the time of the Buddha, who before he ordained as a monk was a musician of a stringed instrument. And the Buddha sensed that his practice was off and he had like, in, you know, really intent on doing his walking practice to the point where he had bad blisters that were getting infected, just walking back and forth. They did, the, the practitioners, you know, at the time, even today in the monasteries, the same way, or if you come on a, one of our retreats, we alternate sitting with walking meditation. So walking meditation is just as valued as a sitting meditation. You basically would sit still upright for as long as you're comfortable, and then you would walk back and forth usually until you were tired, and then you'd sit as long as you were comfortable, and then you'd walk, and you know, you'd fill up your day this way. Of course, you'd have your meal in the morning, even lay people, when they'd go to the monastery, they basically would have one meal. Sometimes it would be a little breakfast, but then you'd have your main meal relatively early in the morning. And that saves the rest of the day just for practice. And you get up, and you can go get your food as soon as, you know, back in the day when they didn't have lights, as soon as you could see the lines on your palm, because it was enough of dawn to see that, then you could go and... Uh, the nuns and the monks would take their bowls and walk to the nearest town and just wait outside of a home for a while, maybe do some chanting. If nobody comes out, they walk to the next house. And sometimes, a lot of the times in those places, because the nuns and monks were so revered, that people would bring out the food. And, and then they'd have most of the day, though, just for walking and sitting. So Sona had been over-efforting, and uh, was, uh, his mind was getting more tight, and he thought to himself, you know, Has anybody, is anybody making more effort than me? No. Has my mind come to understand anything of significance? No. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? So he's getting pretty frustrated, because he thought, you know, working hard should lead to success, and I'm working hard, no success, something's wrong here. So the Buddha shows up and says, uh, weren't you a musician? He says, yeah. And how did your instrument sound when the strings were too tight? Well, sometimes they would break and it certainly didn't sound good. Ah. And how did it sound when the strings were too loose? Not very good. Oh. <laughs> Do you get what I'm pointing to, right? You know, that what, what kind of effort is wise? Because we swing, we can swing back and forth for a long time. And the whole path that, for whatever reason, you've gotten interested in, it's really a wisdom path. It's about the transformation of understanding. 
So when in doubt, anywhere along the path, when in doubt, the antidote for doubt isn't so much more thinking, but to bring in something that uh, keeps us from doing the same thing, that, you know, that, that sort of interrupts the spinning. Oh, okay. So the primary change agent from the Buddhist teachings is this present moment awareness and learning how to sustain it. So let me not presume I know what I'm doing. Let me just recognize, let me make the effort now to experiment. I've got my own experience right here. I'm a human being with experience. I've got all the necessary ingredients to directly learn what it is to be present. What kind of effort, application of mind is required for the mind for wisdom in the mind to recognize that this experience is being known. It's a very refined effort, very refined movement. It's not complicated, but we dismiss it. We haven't learned to value that reflective knowing. It's different than just being conscious, conscience, conscious, right? Because the mind is recognizing what's being known. Like we're sitting here listening, and isn't there that capacity of our mind to know that this is happening? And that knowing that this is happening is no way trying to intervene or judge or spin the moment. That's a characteristic of mindfulness. You know, we often say it's a non-judging awareness. But it's not like I'm trying not to judge it. It's by its nature what mindfulness is. It's not judging. It's like a mirror that's just reflecting. Oh yeah, it's like this. This is what's being known. This is what's being felt. And it's so subtle a movement of the mind that we tend not to give it significance. That's the effort. That's why Thich Nhat Hanh says, the enemy is forgetfulness. It's so subtle or refined, we tend to forget that it's significant. So we need to keep it in mind. That's the sustaining. It doesn't really have much power to lead to insight where the mind is seeing what it hasn't seen about the mind, about experience, until we sustain that present moment awareness moment by moment by moment. Initially, maybe a few seconds, and then over time it can be longer. And it will initially, one of the things, and this is what I mentioned in the guided set, you know, what is it that interrupts the continuity? Well, when we do get a thread of continuity, one of the things that happens is we start to experience reality differently because we don't know reality with sustained present moment awareness. We know reality lost in our thoughts, and our projections. So a lot of energy builds, and we don't recognize the moment, because it's present, <laughs> and we're, not, we're used to being distracted. So we, the, the sort of shift causes us to stop doing what we were doing. 
making the effort to sustain present moment awareness. And we're back kind of in our ordinary struggles and thoughts about this and that, like thoughts about practice instead of practicing. And then we want to scramble to get back because the aftertaste is like, that was interesting. That felt special. But we forget like how we got there to begin with. Just recognize it's like this now. It's like this now. One image that I like that I heard from Sharon Salzberg, I don't know if she came up with it, but being in the present moment is like being on a tightrope. And we're, you know, we're trying to be balanced and all kinds of stuff are coming at us in the present moment, balanced in the present moment. And as soon as something comes at us that we don't like or that we like, we lose our balance. But here's the interesting thing about the story or this teaching story. You always land on another tightrope. Mm-hmm. As soon as we look, we're, we find I'm back on a tightrope and things are coming at me. Experience. How, I mean, think about in any moment like this moment, how many sense impingements, sounds, sights, thoughts, emotions, smells and tastes, touches. I mean, it's really close to infinite. You know, just just on one, just through one sense case, how many physical, tactile experiences are happening right now? Visual experiences. It's really coming at us. And so, something is going to trigger selfing, self-centered drama, in a little or big way. It almost always does. And as soon as it does, we're in that drama, we're in that bubble, and we're, we lose the present moment. But the opportunity always represent, uh, presents itself, right? Because we can be balanced in the next moment. And balanced means we're not forgetting that this is being known. The one, you know, just the use the military terminology, you know, the one weapon we need in our war against distraction is to realize whatever comes away, even if I, the most despicable tendencies of my personality get triggered, it's still something being known. Even if I'm totally acting out in an immature way, in an aggressive way, in an inappropriate way, something being known. Something being known. I'm not saying that it's okay that I'm acting out in an unskillful way. I'm just saying in terms of our practice, it's something being known, something being felt. A lot of people think, well, this sounds a little bit nihilistic, like it doesn't matter what I do. But it's really more about the way to understand it is like, how do I become a skillful person? by being really afraid of being an unskillful person? Does that work? Well, it kind of works, but ultimately it doesn't work very well to be afraid of being bad. Or being very desirous of being good kind of works, but ultimately doesn't work. To really aspire, you know, to kind of have this idea of myself when I'm perfect and then try to get there. There's a lot of stress in that, just like being really afraid of being bad trying not to get there, 
it works a li- just enough to confuse us, but doesn't really work. What does work, and we have to check it out, because it doesn't help to believe it, is to be aware, continuously. Because then when we're really acting out and being unskillful, we're putting all of the emphasis on this non-judging presence that understands, oh, it's like this. Acting out, feels like this, looks like this. And I guarantee, it's hard to continue being a jerk or unskillful or whatever when there's that balanced, non-judging awareness that sees things as they are. It sees, feels the seeds that are getting planted, feels and sees what's getting set in motion in our own heart, around us and other people. Unskillful behavior is undermined when we're aware. Skillful behavior is watered and cultivated when we're aware. Not because somebody's trying to do it. The awareness itself, the reflective awareness itself, transforms us. And therefore the world. Now I know, (laughs) can you imagine at the United Nations or even in our local government, I mean, they've done this actually in the police departments, um, bringing in mindfulness as a way of, and, and it will help, but it can't be superficial, you know, this is the problem. And the thing is, it doesn't really work unless people take the time, like have enough humility to take the time to realize they don't know what it is to be present. It's so humiliating to admit we don't know what it is to be present. Because we're, the way our minds operate, the mental projection, cognitive projection we have, has suited us just fine all these years. So we don't realize how limited it is and how, um, yeah, limited, I guess is a good way of saying it. It's just, you know, perpetuates the problem. It's like uh, whiteness and racism. We don't realize that how my mind, you know, being raised as a white person in this culture, how I, so much of what keeps racism in motion, it's just part of how my mind frames experience. We don't see superiority because it's sort of the water I've been part of for so long, around class, around gender, around race, around you know so many different things. And that goes from anybody in any position in culture. We're caught in that. And so the way to get uncaught, we can't, I can't just push a button and get rid of my conditioning. But what I can do is learn to be aware. And I see it. Then I see the maleness, and I see the whiteness, and I see the class, and I see all the different conditioning forces. Because where else is it if not in the present moment, depending on the particular triggers? There it is. Dominating this, being afraid here, being the victim, being the perpetrator, being the this and the that, all these different conceits, all these different stances, all these different fixed views. It's not a pretty sight, <laughs> but it's really useful. If, if we're going to be conditioned by culture, we want to see it. 
the last thing is to be last thing we want is to be conditioned by culture and to pretend it isn't important or relevant. Because that means we're destined just to keep repeating the sins of the past forever. And then we get a world like this. So we'll come back to this topic one more time, uh, one more week. But uh, we've got 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. I know Jake has the microphone over there. And just your own reflections, your own learnings, questions that are emerging about wise effort, clarifications you'd like to bring up. Who would like to begin? And we're not, uh, yeah, anybody can begin. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I have a question about, I think I've been practicing long enough and um, earnestly enough that I can see all of my stuff, or a lot of it. Uh, and like you're saying, it's not pretty. And uh, I feel like the longer I practice, the more I see. And I think it's hard to see the progress um, because when it's not there, or maybe when it's not activated, I don't notice. And so what I experience is just more and more of these activations, and I do have a practice like you were talking about, of, you know, this is being known, it's like this right now, um, you know, whatever, and knowing it. And I just wonder if you have any encouragement for that kind of, um, when you're in that space, when you, you're seeing what before was not conscious and it's painful and and you also can't do anything about it and um, I think that can be very discouraging because like you're saying it just feels like okay I can see everything I'm mindful I'm seeing I'm seeing it and it starts to be a little I guess it's feeling a little demoralizing um, if that makes sense yeah, it does make sense and it's a really good question I mean, there's different nuances to respond. One is uh, friends who are, understand the practice well enough, who know us pretty good, uh, pretty well, so that they can really reflect back how you're becoming a different person. Um, because they, it's easier for someone outside, because in the middle it's really messy. But to sort of see your resilience, see the spaciousness that's there that didn't wasn't so much there in the past, um, the creativity, the forgiveness, all those sort of beautiful qualities that like the ten parmes, you know, that they're just naturally showing up more uncontrived, powerful ways. That's really nice to have a friend who can reflect that back, not even in a formal way, but just that appreciation of what's afoot, like what's really happening in your life. But in a more specific way, when we're seeing a lot of the messiness of the mind's conditioning, the unskillfulness of the mind's conditioning, the pettiness of the mind's conditioning, like, you know, in my relationship with my partner, Wynn, who's the co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers here. You know, for us, it's a really enlivening part of the practice, the sort of uh, unskillfulness of our minds, because we have a sense of humor about it, you know, and it, to have a friend that you can kind of 
it's kind of a, this confessional part of the practice where we're not ashamed because it's not personal. We, none of us chose the kind of ways that our heart mind has been conditioned by culture and by genetics. You know, like uh, some of you have heard, you know, we have that reptilian conditioning. We were once those, you know, conditioned by those creatures crawling out of the sea and the dinosaurs. We're the continuation of all of that evolution. That's just written into our genes, on top of which then we get conditioned by culture. And it ain't hurt, but it also isn't personal. And that's what you can really emphasize in the scene of it, really emphasize this is how it is, it's changing, it's alive, whatever this expression of this conditioning, whatever that is, it's alive. It's not like written in stone. When I personalize it, it will always be unbearable. It's actually nature, not self. We don't have a problem with weather, but when it's our own personality, you know, it just seems like, no, no, this is personal. The weather's not personal. The little, you know, this thing going on in my backyard, that's not personal, but this is personal. But we can train our mind to really see it as it is. No, no, it's just nature. It doesn't mean it's not unskillful. It's still unskillful. It still can be the cause for real harm. But we're not adding this sort of second arrow, as we say in early Buddhism. We're not hating ourselves. We're being afraid of it. And then we can really do, then we can actually do some stuff about, around it. We can ventilate it, we can create the causes and conditions that let some of it unwind, not all of it. Even the awakened ones, you know, they didn't have necessarily have perfect personalities. Perfection, in the way that there was is perfection in this world, is not being confused by the conditioning, as opposed to being somehow perfect. Perfectly unconfused. Oh yeah, this is how it is right now. I saw this, you did that, there's this emotion arising, this impulse to want to hit back. I see that, I see the unskillfulness of it, but it's still here. You know, and I have to leave the room just to make sure that I don't act it out. But I know like all things, it comes and goes lawfully due to causes and conditions. You know, it's like alcoholics might be sober for 20 years, but they understand the tendency that's there. And they respect that tendency like, I don't go into bars because I know that tendency is there. And this is, this is like having this, we're embodied creatures with not to put reptiles down, but with reptilian conditioning, you know. And uh, we need to respect that. And, and real skill then is really being grounded, rooted in reality. Oh yeah, this is what it means to be embodied as a human being. 
as a sexual being, I'll talk about those messy places, and uh, where we live in this competitive way around power and privilege. So it's a setup, totally. So the question is, what do we do with it? We can use it to beat ourselves up, to hate ourselves, or to judge and hate others. Or we can, we can be really curious about what would it be to be completely free, like a, a leaf being blown around by wind. And the thing is that the, the difference is that what we're adding as a spiritual being is this ongoing reflective knowing. It's like this. And this is what we're learning is that addition, like a leaf doesn't have that reflective knowing, it's just at the, you know, push and pull of the wind. But we, have, we can have, this mind-body can have that reflective knowing. And because of this built-in moral sensitivity, that's just part when it's not suppressed. You know, we, we naturally live for the benefit of all. Because we're not going to save ourselves. This is the thing, that, that reflective knowing. The only thing to do with this life is to contribute. What else would we do? We don't take anything with us. Thanks for the good comment. And it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. And we'll talk about energy one more week. Really appreciate everybody coming. Let's just take 10 seconds, let go of the words, have a moment of silence together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.